So help us to understand why we have such confidence that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Please be seated, everybody. Unusually, it's an elderly woman that is stopped by the police for speeding. She dutifully pulls in when the sirens and the lights go and waits as the officer gets out of the car, goes to the uh, passenger, uh, sorry, goes to the driver's side where the lady has been driving and knocks on the window. She winds down the window. The officer says to the lady, I'm going to book you for speeding. You were driving too fast. But before you say anything, I need to warn you that anything you say, I will have to write down in my book and it will get read out in court. There was a long pause as the elderly woman thought very carefully. And then after a few moments, she simply said, Please, Mr. Policeman, will you stop hitting me now? (laughs) As with all events, as with all circumstances, we need to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. What is the truth when everything else is stripped away? You can argue about the detail till the cows come home, but what is the truth about the resurrection? But firstly, why is it so important? Some people have said it's not important anymore. It doesn't matter whether Jesus was raised from from death to life or not. Let's just put it on the back burner. It's a contentious issue, so why let it bother us or upset us? Well, as the Bible makes very plain, you cannot simply say it does not matter. It does not matter is not something that you can be serious about because of the way everything else hinges upon the resurrection. Paul makes it very clear, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, which you might say anyway, and so is our faith. Without the resurrection, what are you putting your faith in? If only uh, for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Feel sorry for yourself then if Jesus has not been raised because you've been hoodwinked, you've been conned, you've followed a false God, you've gone searching under a false rainbow. As Michael Green put it, who was uh, once and maybe he still is the uh, uh, advisor on evangelism to the Archbishop of Canterbury, amongst many other things, Christianity, he says, does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, he says, there would be no Christianity at all. But why? Why? Because without the resurrection, there is no salvation. You see, if Christ was not raised, then death defeated him like it has defeated every other human being. If Christ has not been raised, then nothing has happened to your sin or mine upon the cross. If the resurrection does not exist, then who am I going to trust to forgive my sin? Who am I going to trust when I stand before God uh, and have to confess that my life has not been all that it should have been? If Christ has not been raised, then the Holy Spirit would not come and there is no new life. If Jesus is now dead, we cannot meet Him, know Him, love Him, serve Him, have our lives transformed by Him. 
Sparrow Simpson, W.J. Sparrow Simpson no less, says, if the resurrection is not history fact, then the power of death remains unbroken and with it the effect of sin. And the significance of Christ's death remains uncertified and accordingly believers are yet in their sins precisely where they were before they heard Jesus' name. If you take the resurrection away, everything else falls like a pack of cards. And that's why Paul was so quick to point out, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, those Christians that have gone before us, he's saying, what about them if Christ hasn't been raised? Well, he says they're lost. If Jesus is not raised, redemptive history ends in the cul-de-sac of a Palestinian grave. And without the resurrection, not only is there no salvation, but Jesus isn't God. And if Jesus isn't God, why do we worship him as if he is and serve him as if he is? Jesus made so many promises in his life that after three days or on the third day, he would come back to life. He used it as a means to authenticate his life and his teaching. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there are numerous times when Jesus says very simply that it's necessary for the Son of Man to be crucified and on the third day to rise again. If our Lord so frequently and with great definiteness and detail, says Wilbur Smith, says that after he went up to Jerusalem he would be put to death, but on the third day he would rise again from the grave, and this prediction came to pass, then it has always seemed to me that everything else our Lord ever said must also be true. You see, the resurrection is the big one. Jesus made it the big one. Jesus says you will be able to believe the other things I've said about myself if you come to understand and to know that the big one is true. It's important because without it, Jesus isn't God. And without it, the Bible is meaningless. The Bible reasserts that Jesus was buried and that he rose, not according to a whole group of odd people, but according to the Scriptures. It's at the heart of the Bible's testimony that Jesus did rise again. Paul makes it so central to all that he says, and we'll look at that in a moment. If you lifted out every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, then almost nothing of the Bible remains. You end up with a book incredibly mutilated. The resurrection is the glue, the uh, spine, however, whatever metaphor you choose to use, that holds the whole thing together, gives it meaning and sense and foundation. And fourthly, the importance of the resurrection without it, Christianity is nothing special. That's what everyone wants uh, to talk about these days. There isn't something that is special. There are lots of things and they're all special. 
It's a bit like the modern vogue for pass the parcel. In parties, everybody wins. It wasn't like that in my day. It wasn't like that in yours. And some of us are still bruised because we did not win. And so we live in this world where we like to say, everybody wins. Which actually goes against completely 2,000 years of Christian teaching that says, hey, we've got something that's different here. You see, most religions in our world are all about human philosophical proposition. That's what most beliefs and religions are about. And then there are four major religions that centre around human beings. The Jewish religion, founded by Abraham. Buddhism, founded by Buddha, obviously. Islam, founded by Muhammad. And Christianity, founded by Jesus. Just four that are built around a person. It's only Christianity that claims an empty tomb. All the millions and millions of Jews, Buddhists, Mohammeds agree that their founders have never come up out of the dust of the earth in resurrection. They don't attempt to claim it, they don't say that it's true, they don't pretend that it is, except Christianity. It says it is qualitatively different because we are the only faith that has at its beginnings a man who was once dead but now uh, alive. In other words, I'd say to anybody, if you're serious about searching for the meaning of life, don't go to Christianity first because I happen to be a minister, but go there first because it is so different to all the others. And yet if you read your newspapers, if you watch your telly, everyone tries to pretend that it's all the same. And to be fair to those that follow other religions, they know that it's not the same in the same way that we do. It's a whole lot of people who don't believe very much. You keep telling us it's all the same. And it isn't. It never was. And it's a misunderstanding. The importance of it, without it, without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing special. So we are faced then with this important question, did it really actually happen? Well, I'm going to look at two things under this big heading, did it happen? People's testimonies, and then some theories about why it may or may not have happened. The biggest testimony is that of the Apostle Paul. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he goes on. What was it that was of first importance? Well, turn to it with me, would you? In the Pew Bibles, page 1155, if you uh, uh, can find it in the uh, pew in front of you. 15, verse 3. I want to remind you, the gospel I preached to you, sorry, uh, verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, after that to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have already died, some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Now why is this so important? You might have assumed that we'd go first of all to the Gospels, to the stories about Jesus, the different ones that we've uh, read already during our service. But there are three things that are particularly important about Paul and what's going on here and in other parts of his writings. The first thing to say is the date. Paul's writings 
the earliest documents that we have. So it's the closest we get to the resurrection date itself. And that's why we're looking at it before we go on to the Gospels. Paul was writing around, probably just less than, 20 years after the event of the resurrection. Now in terms of verifying ancient events, that is an incredibly short space of time. From an historian's point of view, it's a very reliable source indeed. Take as an example Livy's Roman history. The copy that we have was written 900 years after the original, and yet we don't seriously question its authenticity. This is 20 years after the event. So suddenly you have an ancient document, an ancient bit of writing that is incredibly close to the events that it is giving attestation to. Oops, sorry. Second thing about it is, uh, where are we gone? It's the oral tradition. You'll notice in verse 3, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That's one of those special phrases. It's one of those terms that they would use in their society to say, I'm passing on to you not just a story that's been casually remembered, but something that we are deliberately keeping, protecting for future generations. There were no books. There was not the internet. There were no libraries. There were no no, uh, means of of, of duplicating and preserving things. So oral tradition was incredibly important. And they were very skilled at passing certain key pieces of information on deliberately and carefully. Paul says, this is something that has been deliberately protected and is being passed on to you very carefully in our oral tradition. And then he says, if you're still not sure about it, then go and check it out for yourself. He says, you don't have to listen to my words, you can verify the fact that the resurrection has taken place because he appeared to Peter, go and talk to Peter about it. Then to the twelve, go and talk to the twelve about it. And then there were 500 people, here are the names, here's a hundred names, go and chat to them about it. And so he goes on to James and to others. These people were still alive. Paul's going, if you don't believe my word about it, then go and check it out with all these other guys who actually are still alive. Send them an email, write them a note, get in touch, see what they have to say about what I'm talking about. And so we have this incredibly concise and accurate reflection of what must have taken place. And then finally he goes, well, I can speak on my own authority because you'll remember me Paul, abnormally born, I was against Jesus, I was against the church, but on the road to Damascus I met him and it changed my life and you can see the change for yourselves. So we have the testimony of Paul, we also have the testimony of course of the Gospels. You'll notice that the Gospel writers are writing to different types of people, that's why they tell different parts sometimes of the stories of Jesus. For example, when we look at Jesus' birth, only Matthew talks about the wise men coming. Luke has a different take. It tells about different events because he's got a different purpose in writing. All four Gospels, all four Gospels are absolutely definite and give great prominence to the empty tomb and the variety of post-resurrection appearances. By itself, John Drain writes, the fact of an empty grave would prove nothing except that Jesus' body was not there. 
Without the empty grave, the visions would prove nothing objective, though they might tell us something about the psychology of the disciples. But the combination of the two facts, if they are indeed correct, could be strong evidence in support of the claim that Jesus was alive. Remember all that we said. The Gospels were written after Paul's letters. And so Paul's letters are circulating around. And you have uh, the knowledge from Paul's letters that that Jesus appeared to uh, Simon Peter and then to the Twelve, then to the Five Hundred, and all of that. The Gospels do not include all that information in their stories. And the strongest reason for understanding them not marshalling every ounce of evidence they could get about the resurrection of Jesus when they began writing their stories is most likely to be the fact that the the resurrection of Jesus was not in dispute. They were not writing to a group of people that needed to to be convinced about it because they knew all these people who'd seen Jesus once dead, now alive, with the marks, hands, side, feet, and all the rest of it. And so the case builds through Paul and the Gospel writers not cramming all the information in that they could have put in that we knew, that we know was already out there. That the resurrection of Jesus was well attested to. It brings these true truths together in Luke 24, 34. It is true the Lord has risen and He has appeared to Simon amongst many others. And then, of course, we have the testimony of the changed lives of the first disciples. This is, I think, a very powerful piece of information. You need to come up with a reason why the disciples changed so dramatically and irrevocably if you do not put it down to the resurrection. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These are people who only weeks before were uh, hidden away, locking the doors for fear that people might come looking for them. Now speaking with such boldness towards the very people they had been in such fear of. We have to face the fact that a thoroughly disheartened band of disciples who'd been utterly depressed and disillusioned by their master's death were transformed into this fearless, courageous, evangelistic force. Why? Why? The church, Michael Green recalls, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax gatherers, swept across the whole known world in 300 years. It is a perfectly amazing story of a peaceful revolution that has no parallel in the history of the world. It came about because Christians were able to say to inquirers, Jesus did not only die for you, He is alive. You can meet Him and discover for yourself the reality He was talking about. They did, and joined the church. And the church born from that Easter grave spread everywhere. And then, of course, you have the changed lives ever since. Not only was it those that immediately met the risen Jesus whose lives were changed, but very quickly uh, we read that God was adding to the number daily. One day, 3,000 people claimed in a spiritual way to have met a Jesus who is not dead, but alive. And how many millions of lives ever since, down to this day, to this church, to this community, when people go through the waters of baptism, they say, in some way, beyond my understanding, this Jesus who once was dead is now alive. And I know Him and love Him. I'm putting my life into His hands. 
Nicky Gumbel of Alpha fame, countless millions of people down the ages have experienced the risen Jesus Christ. They consist of people of every colour, race, tribe, continent and nationality. They come from different economic, social and intellectual backgrounds, yet they all unite in a common experience of the risen Christ. So did it happen? Testimonies. Lots of them. Did it happen? Well, there are some theories as to why maybe it didn't. And we need just to think about them uh, very briefly as we draw towards a conclusion. Maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe. Maybe they did. It's psychologically improbable. Why after the death of Jesus, which left them so shattered and scared, would they begin a lie that would bring them into direct confrontation with those authorities they were so afraid of? Why would they allow themselves to be tortured and martyred for something they knew just wasn't true? No one, if they stole the body, ever let the cat out of the bag. Spin doctors, eat your heart out. Unless, of course, it was true. And so there was no cat, so to speak, to let out of the bag. Apologies to all cat lovers. The change in their lives from fear to faith, despair to confidence, confusion to certitude, runaway cowardice to steadfast boldness under threat and persecution not only proves their sincerity but testifies to some powerful cause of it. Can a, call, can a lie be such cause? They had no motive, did they? Lies are always told for some advantage. Find an advantage to the disciples for the lie of the resurrection. Persecuted, excommunicated, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled and fed to lions. Hardly a catalogue of perks. We might lie for our own advantage, but hardly for some of those. Why was the lie never exposed? Why didn't the Jewish authorities find the body and sort out how hard could it be? They had the power to do that. The tomb we know was guarded and so we could go on. The grave clothes were still folded and in their place. Maybe the authorities stole the body. But then why didn't they on that first sermon when Peter gets up and says, hey, Jesus is alive and all the authorities go, we can't stand them speaking like this. Why didn't they wheel the corpse into the marketplace? Or maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he was only almost dead when they took him off the cross. Well, the soldiers confirm that Jesus died because they, we read that he, they didn't break his legs because they knew that he was dead. These are professional executioners. Death was their business. They said he had died. Uh, not only that, we know that there was blood and water that came out of Jesus' side. The Gospel writer was simply writing what he observed with no idea of the medical evidence that would suggest that death had taken place. Even if he wasn't dead, the grave clothes would have suffocated him. Have you ever been wrapped up like a mummy for burial and left for a few days? It's not good to do that. Don't try it at home. The boulder was there so that physically strong men couldn't get in 
What about a half-dead man trying to get out? The flogging that Jesus endured, you know the lashes? Sometimes killed men. It was so vicious. It ripped off the flesh from somebody's back so that their bowels and innards were on display. Could that man then be nailed to a cross, wriggle out of the grave clothes, fold them up, leave them intact, roll back the stone, overpower the guards, and slip away without anyone noticing? You can believe that, but I think that's harder to believe. A half-dead, staggering sick man who's just had a narrow escape is not usually worshipped fearlessly as divine Lord and conqueror of death. And then people say, maybe, well, it was all a load of hallucinations. But you will know that hallucinations, well, maybe you don't, I hope you don't, (laughs) but you may, not from personal experience anyway, uh, hallucinations are not common. We don't generally have them most days of the week, although people do have them under stress. But when they do have them under stress, they are private, they are individualistic, and they are subjective. They are like your dreams, if you like. You do not dream the same way as other people. And knowing your dreams, you're probably grateful that others don't dream the same way as you. Hallucinations cannot be touched. Lots of emphasis about Jesus being held and touched. And in conclusion, then did it happen? Well, yes, I think it probably did. I don't think. I know. I know because you build the picture of the objective evidence and you say everything about this objective evidence points towards a certain conclusion. And if that conclusion is true, when I invite Jesus into my life, it will make all the difference in the world. And it did. And it has. The simple faith of the Christian who believes in the resurrection is nothing compared to the credulity of the sceptic who will accept the wildest and most improbable romances rather than admit the plain witness of historical certainties. The difficulties may be great, but the absurdities of unbelief are greater. I remember, um, uh, what's his name? Bowen. Oh, what's his first name? BBC reporter. Somebody Bowen. Jeremy, that's it, Jeremy. I knew it was a nice name. Jeremy Bowen. He's not a Christian, but you may have seen some of his documentaries just a few years ago. And he came to the end of it all, looking at the resurrection and the life of Jesus. He said, I'm not a Christian, but it's very difficult in any way to marshal any evidence to suggest that what Christians claim, that the one who was dead is now alive, is not true. All the evidence points in a certain direction. And sometimes people act like becoming a Christian is a leap into the dark. Hey, it's a leap into the light. It's a step that makes sense of what we know to be true. And is it relevant today? You bet your bottom dollar it's relevant today. I don't understand these church people who say it doesn't matter. You see, I want to know that my sin has been sorted out, don't you? And I can only know my sin's been sorted out if Jesus who was dead is now alive. If he's still dead, I'm stuffed. The resurrection validates the cross. The resurrection means he's alive. I need to know that. Or all this is ritualistic claptrap if he's not alive. His resurrection affirms that I too will be raised. Hey, I need to know that. I'm going to live this life for 70 years plus. Who knows? But even if I don't, or even if I go on to be 107, perish the thought for all of us. 
What's coming is nothing compared to this speck. I want to know that what's coming is sorted. And if Jesus hasn't been there to sort it, I'm stuffed. I've got no other option. I've got nothing else up my sleeve. And finally, it's what relevance today. You see, the resurrection brings us confidence in the marketplace of faith. Everybody says, believe what you like. Well, believe what you like. But I want to know. I want to know. And what happened in a Palestinian grave some 2,000 years ago means, I believe, that I can know. And if you don't know, I invite you to explore the evidence Read some books of people that set out to disprove the resurrection and became believers in Jesus Christ because they were overwhelmed by what they understood to be the truth. Let's stand together. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne.